You said extrinsic. Extrinsic then or intrinsic? Oh, no, no, no. You said it right. The raffle would be extrinsic modification, uh, motivation. Okay, this might be the, the cut in before the show. <laughs> uh. Hi, I'm Samuel from User Onboard. And I'm Johan, also from User Onboard. And today, our episode is all about our user value research process. We have received uh, multiple items of feedback of people mentioning to us that they are interested in trying to apply value paths, practices and philosophies at their place of work and are bumping up against the point of trying to be able to identify what those desirable motivational user outcomes are and ideally find ones that are strongly correlated with good healthy revenue metrics as well where you can see if there's a there's a causality between people desiring a particular outcome and the people who desire it or ideally achieve it uh seeing a, a better performance from a revenue standpoint from the users who who reached that particular milestone or aspire to so today we are talking about how we dig up all of those truffles can i just say that i love that these are the questions we've received. <laughs> um, user research is not the easiest process to run, um, but it is the most reliable. And I love that people are curious about the difficult but more reliable means of uh, getting to outcomes, getting to beneficial outcomes. Strong agree. So that said, we are more than happy to um, share our secret sauce here and go over every single step um, that we would pay attention to between not knowing why people come to our product and then towards having a pretty strong signal backed by patterns in the data as to what the most lucrative reasons to go after are. Completely agreed. And I, it's not going to necessarily tell you right out of the box which of these different desired outcomes are most closely aligned with revenue. That's a different step. Right now, we're just really focusing in on how do you run the qualitative interview side of it? How do you go through the process of making sure that you're talking to the right people, asking them the right questions, and ultimately getting the right feedback? So we're imagining that a company has come to us. We've got a new client and they're like, we like value parts. And you've said the first step is user research. So come in and do some user research for us. And this is exactly what we would do with this hypothetical company. All right. So let's dive in with hypothetical co and help them know their users' desired outcomes better. Awesome. So step number one would be getting everybody in a room and talking about the fundamental assumption of value paths, because that's really the most important thing to get on the same page about. And that assumption is that every, every, every time that someone engages with Hypothetical Co's app, they are doing it to improve something in their situations. They are doing it for a reason, and that reason is specific. Agreed, Samuel? Agreed. And I think most essentially we're talking about the present situation or the beginning situation that drives them to the hypothetical co's offering. And then there's also the desired outcome situation 
that they're hoping that the offering can help them arrive at. Uh, so I, I don't know if I paid my electricity bill. I go to a particular app. Now I know if I've paid my electricity bill. So things along those lines. There's a before state and an after state. And we want to get a familiarity with the before state that they're currently in when they are going through a process of becoming a user, becoming a customer, so on and so forth. But what we really want to identify are patterns in the commonalities of the after states that people are desiring. Where if I bring this product into my life, I hope to be better off in ways X, Y, and Z in my life, not just I'm looking for qualities and characteristics X, Y, Z in an app. And so that's really the distinction that we are, are trying to tease out here via our, our particular qualitative research method that, that we are in the midst of describing, I guess you could say. We are beginning to unfold. Right, right. So in this meeting, we would get everyone to agree that these before and after states exist and that users are intimately familiar with their own before and after states. So we're kicking off this research project, not just saying, um, let's go talk to users and let's keep it open-ended and see what um, nuggets of gold they surface. So let's ask them about the user experience and just um, see what happens. We're not saying any of that. We're saying we acknowledge that users are here for something. We acknowledge that they know about their before states, the ones that they're presently in. And we acknowledge that they know about their after states as well in that they have very specific ideas about what they want. Um, and that's what we're going to ask them about and uncover. So once everyone is in agreement and um, we can call this meeting successful, our next step would be to figure out which users we're speaking to. Depending on where users are in the customer lifecycle, they are going to talk about their before and their after states quite differently. For example, imagine you're talking to someone who, who's been paying you for the last two months. Hopefully, they've found some kind of value, which is um, the reason they've stuck around for this long. Um, their before states are going to be uh, not as immediate and for that reason, uh, a little hazy, maybe, um, or not as accessible as a customer who has just started paying you. And compare those two situations with a customer who has been with you, say, for a year. Um, in that case, it's going to be different in a lot of ways as well. Okay, let me, let me see if I'm following you correctly. So you're saying if you talk to longer-term customers then you are going to, it's more likely that they will reflect on bigger, broader strokes impact on their their life and their timeline. Whereas you've talk, if you talk to newer customers or newer users, you're going to get more immediate, concrete, shorter term kind of feedback. Is, is that the general idea? Yeah, yeah. So let me give you a concrete example here, like Invoicer, the I, the app that we love to um, use in our examples. We'll swap that um, out for hypothetical co. We'll, sw we'll switch over. We're pivoting to Invoicer. Early Invoicer customers might just be, you know, the biggest priority might just be getting paid. And we've talked about this in the past, right? You sign up and one of the core things you're here for is to create an invoice and get paid. 
But if you talk to someone who's been using Invoicer for, say, 10 months or one year, they've been consistently getting paid. So what kind of value is Invoicer unlocking for them now? It's different. It's broader. It's bigger. I, I would argue, I, I, I mean, in a sense, like if you if you want compounding revenue and you want to have people stick around for a long time, you, you should really think about what things look like that that far out and, and think about how you can design a uh, your offering in such a way that the value compounds over time and, and that the longer they stick around and the more that they invest in in your support environment, the 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 cooler things that they can do and the bigger and more interesting things they can do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like I'm um, pulling us into the weeds a little bit here, but we we are talking (laughs) about our process. So I don't I don't want to go too hard on a tangent if I'm if I'm. Oh, not at all. Um, I feel like I feel like this was very interesting ground that we covered and supports the point that we were trying to make, which is figuring out what set of customers you want to talk to and where that set of customers is in the customer life cycle changes the kind of information that you receive from them. I think that the one extra spin or maybe just another way of putting it to me is to be thinking about which parts of the user slash customer life cycle are potentially the highest leverage to invest in. And when we look at a survival curve of how many people start out at sign up and then make it through the onboarding experience and then at some point do something meaningful and then at some point convert to paid and then at some point become a second paying second month paying user and third month and fourth month and retain and pay out their full LTV and so on and so forth. When we look at the drop off rates from one step to the next to the next, usually it's not like, whoa, there's a big drop off from month 20 to month 21. Usually the most significant ones are taking place early in the process. And so you want to be thinking, are we going to try to improve our sign up to paid conversion rate? Are we going to try to improve our month one to month two retention rate? so on and so forth. And when you're thinking about which part of the customer timeline you're trying to augment the most, that's going to ultimately determine who you talk to. And you want to filter all of the potential customers or users that you could talk to down to only people who are representative of that part of the timeline. Is that fair, Johan? Yeah, totally fair. And I think that was very well put. Well, thank you. (laughs) There could be situations where it makes sense to talk to customers further out into the timeline. But where we typically like to start is by talking to customers who have just made their first payment. And the reason for this is, actually there are quite a few reasons for this. One, there are simply more of them. There are more people by definition who will pay you for the first time than who will pay you for the 10th or even pay you for the third, as Samuel was just saying when he was talking about survival curves. A second good reason to talk to customers who've just paid you is that they have taken that big step of paying you, and it's happened very recently. So everything that they're hoping to get from your software is still fresh in their minds, and that's very fertile ground to 
to jump in and say, hey, what are those reasons? Because we want to support them better. Those are the two reasons that come to the top of my mind. Um, any that I'm forgetting, Samuel? I think the way that I would frame it for the listeners is is that we see new customers as being kind of a, a Goldilocks sort of a thing, where if you look at people earlier in the timeline, like right when they first create their account, then you're, you are able to talk to more people. There's a higher volume of, of potential candidates to, to speak with, but it's lower quality signal from the people that you're hearing from because they haven't really proven out that their needs and considerations are actually, if met, are actually going to result in customerhood. They could just be a bad fit for the for the offering itself. They might not never want to pay full price for what it for what it's doing. There could be a million different reasons that somebody could sign up, and ultimately, it's not going to go that well. So, if you put the threshold at new customer, then that kind of cuts out a lot of the yahoos. For one thing, um, however, as Johan mentioned, if you wait to talk to customers who've been around for nine months, 10 months, you're going to be, it's not going to be as emotionally uh, rich of a conversation about what those most critical early first couple months or even first couple weeks of being a user or being a customer uh, were like and what the, those people were trying to accomplish and how they succeeded and became a longtime customer so we can reverse engineer that process to help more people wind up in the place that they wound up. I would also throw out there, just to be a little contrarian, that I we, we our general preference, our, I guess what you could say our default preference is to talk to people who just became new customers. But I do think that if you have enough volume of people who are who are signing up and becoming customers on a regular basis to be able to talk to people a little further into the timeline like month two that might be a stronger indication because you will generally find that of all of the months in which you churn the most in the customer timeline it's from month one to month two almost definitely so when we talk about cutting out the yahoos i would say month two is a pretty strong signal that they're going to be a long-term fit customer and also that they're still fresh enough in their mind that they remember what they're doing. Of course, your mileage may vary depending on the nature of your offering and how many people you're getting and what you're trying to learn uh, in your research efforts to begin with, as we discussed at the top. But that's that's my that's my 101 level take on it. So once you know who you want to speak to, you have to put that list together so that you could reach out to those people. But we have a very specific way of doing this as well. And it's tied into the way that we like to send out our emails. And so this brings us into the delightful territory of user research interview recruiting, which uh, I was joking, it's one of the worst parts of the user research process overall. And we do have some thoughts of uh, on this segment uh, of the work itself as well. Uh, and our, our biggest recommendation here is to think about the kind of bait that you're putting out for catching the kind of fish that you want to. So we've already talked about one big aspect of this, which is uh, to filter people by where they are in the timeline and time your approach of them in a way that's going to align with the part of the timeline that you're looking to improve the most. 
Another thing to consider is when you're reaching out to them to ask them to take time out of their day and their normal processes and, and be generous and give you their attention and their thoughts uh, via research, even if you're compensating for it, which we can discuss later. But if you're asking people to do this, this is this is something that they need to choose to do because they they feel like it's worthwhile in their life for some way, reason. And to leverage as little extrinsic motivation, i.e. we'll put you in a raffle for an iPad or a $50 Amazon gift card or whatever, the more that you can lever leverage and lean into the intrinsic motivations that people might have for providing you with feedback, the better. And so for us, that really starts with the very first UX touchpoint that people have in the recruitment process, which is, in our case, an email, an outreach email, basically a cold email. Um, however, we like to approach it in, in a few ways that might not seem obvious to people right at the beginning, but have a pretty strong rationale behind them. And one of those is to hand deliver or hand send these emails or to at least create as much of an appearance thereof as possible. The opposite of what you want to be doing is sending out a branded uh, like email blast to a bunch of different users that is very clearly not targeting them or taking any interest in their life whatsoever and has like, you know, if you're sending it out and it has an unsubscribe button, you're probably doing it wrong. And the reason for that is because we want people to feel from the beginning that if they actually open up with us and actually take the time out of their day to get on the phone and go through a meeting, which nobody really wants to do, that they are going to at least have their voice heard by somebody who cares. We at least want to set that expectation. Ideally, an expectation that that they're the, through the process of them sharing their perspective, that the offering will improve and that they will stand to gain some sort of benefit from that. But even without that being the case, we want them to feel from the very beginning and throughout the entire process that we genuinely care about what they have to say and that we are taking a personal interest in their own journey and trying to understand how our offering fits into their life. Is that fair, Johan? Yeah, totally fair, especially considering all of the other emails they might be getting around this period. When they're surrounded by automated emails of this kind from the company, in any case, you want this email to not be bunched in with the others. You want this email to seem personal and warm and like there's a real person behind it. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Somebody at this company that I just became a customer for, like actually just wants to hear where I'm coming from. That's the that's the impression that you want to get. Not I am going to be a big cog in a machine of somebody producing some sort of survey or report that uh, who even knows if it's going to see the light of day. That's the opposite of the impression that we want to make from the beginning. Right, right. You know, a lot of times when we're running research projects like these, we'll send out this email and um, users on the other side will just be so happy to talk to a real human being that they'll, you know, treat it like a support conversation. And they'd be like, here's a bug. And by the way, I wanted to do this and I couldn't. <laughs> and I, I take that as an encouraging sign. You know, I take it as a sign that um, 
they know that there's a real person behind this. They know that they will be heard and they're using it to solve their most immediate problems before anything else even happens. And even if they are articulating it as a bug report, quote unquote, you are still able to use that as really rich material to mine into in your interview. When you, uh, if somebody says, hey, by the way, there's a, if, you know, workflow X is broken on my device or I, I keep clicking the button and it doesn't go anywhere. Oh, okay. Why, why were you going through that workflow? Like what, what is it that you're trying to do? How do you see that fitting into your bigger picture plans? And how, what is this little role of the, of the smaller event that's taking place in your life and the bug that's holding it back? What is that a bottleneck for in the bigger events in your life? So I, I would just see that as an opportunity to have like a really nice firm uh, foothold on in, in grounded conversation there. Lot more of that coming um, as as we go as we go through this. But no now spoilers. tying it back to <laughs> no spoilers, but tying it back to what we were talking about. Because we send out emails by hand, we also prefer to send out small batches of emails. Um, so just like maybe ten or fifteen emails a day. Because and I love this metaphor. This allows us to take a scalpel approach with this work. And um, to explain that metaphor a little bit, if you're sending out one email to 500 people, you're not using a scalpel. You're using a hammer. That's a sledgehammer approach. But if you send out one email to 15 people, learn from how those 15 people respond to it, tweak your next email, and then send it out to the next 15 you're not working with a sledgehammer, you're working with a scalpel, and you can be really um, intentional about the email choices that you're making. You can choose exactly what word you want to cut out, and you can be almost surgical with the choices. And it is funny because, like, in, in our experience, we will start out with an outreach email that we feel is like, chef's kiss like oh this is perfection how could how could this possibly not have a 15 percent response rate and everybody telling us they're probably going to tell us how much they like the email and then it's just like <laughs> laughably wrong in some aspect or another and it becomes like forehead slappingly obvious to us once we start seeing what the kind of responses are so strongly agree there's a if you're really really paying attention to even just the nuances of the, the tone of the response that people are taking and points that they might be confused about or any sources of miscommunication that are taking place, you would much rather test that out on 15 people and then be able to tweak it for the remaining 485 than send it out to all 500 people right up front and then have to live with that. So strongly agreed. And, and to be clear, like we're not just talking about goof ups like misspelling the company's name or like saying something that is out outwardly you know like uncouth or whatever what we're saying are that there are optimizations within optimizations and if you're trying to to squeeze all of the juice out of the the participant pool that you're trying to recruit from uh those are the kind of things that we have found to be um surprisingly high leverage i guess we can just put it that way so at this point, it's fair to be wondering, okay, small batches of emails that appear personal so that we can do scalpel work. What has all of this got to do with putting the list together, which is where we started? 
And the answer to that is because we're sending out emails in this particular way, you don't need to put a massive list of 500 people together. You can just work with smaller numbers, you know, the number of people who uh, paid us this week and reach out to them in batches and keep replenishing uh, that list of people over the course of the outreach process. Yeah, I, I guess maybe one other thing we should mention here is that we do, however, not recommend dabbling in this, where if you just kind of reach out to a small handful of people and wind up having five conversations or eight conversations with users or customers, it's better to have five or eight conversations than zero. But what we're really looking to do are identify the patterns that hold true across if not everybody who we talk to, big clusters of people who we talk to. And that takes time for those patterns to emerge at all and then to and to confirm that there's not just a, a statistical insignificance or some sort of sample bias in place. So ultimately, and this this part might be sound the most gobsmackingly absurd to those li listening along, uh, but we like to try to get up to 50 qualitative interviews per research project, uh, where we start out wanting to talk to the first 10 or so people so that we can get a feel for the different patterns, talk to another 10 people to see if those patterns are really holding true, and then continue talking to people in a more and more targeted way about those specific patterns that we can dive more deeply into. So just to agree with Johan there, the approach allows for flexibility to go in and do it a little bit at a time rather than having to overhaul your entire schedule to be able to cram in a ton of user research all at once. So we, we, you can approach it flexibly, but we also recommend not to just nibble at this in a casual way, that really you wanna be going in there and hitting it harder than you might even realize so that you can really test out those patterns before you start investing company dollars and resources toward in, toward supporting those patterns. In our typical tradition of working backwards, we're working backwards in this case as well. So let's say you have identified a pattern. What number of users saying that they're interested in that outcome would make you feel good about investing in that outcome? 15, 20? So work backward from that number. Let's just say, you know, 20 is a number that would make you feel good. If 20 users say that they want this thing, you would feel good about investing in it. That means you have to do 60, you have to get, you know, 60 participants in if you have three patterns, If sorry, if you have three outcomes um, that users desire. And it's very difficult at the beginning of the project to tell what these patterns will look like and how many numbers there will be behind each outcome. So 50 is kind of a safe number in our opinion, and that's why we recommend it. So with that in place, the focus then really becomes nailing the interview part of the research project. So uh, assuming that the person shows up, you might want to also invest some time in sending them a reminder the day before and things like that. Again, those little things can really go a long way toward just maximizing the likelihood of people showing up when you have them scheduled to, to interview. But once they're in the interview, 
Johan, you have become something of a master of getting people to open up about their life circumstances and their motivational reasons to bring a particular offering into their life and incorporate it into their processes in some hopeful way of being able to benefit from it uh, overall. So how do you how do you like to kick off an interview when you do have somebody there live and, and in real time? So there has to be a little bit of initial you know, you can't just start the interview by saying uh, business, business, business. There's a little bit of initial rapport to build, uh, to set people at ease and to make them feel like they're being heard and to make them feel like they can be honest. Mm. Um, and the way I like to do that is to talk about the context of the project. So talk about why we are doing this research. I would typically start by saying Invoicer wants to invest in users in your particular situation, which is why we're trying to learn about it, setting the stage about what we want. And if what we want is just to hear what you have to say, that's a very encouraging signal to send to, um, to send to users. Kind and of disarming. They, feel, they, they, they become yeah. a little less skeptical at that point. Right, right, right. Because oftentimes, the thing that the company wants is completely divorced from their needs and, you know, has to do with uh, the business timeline to bring in a, a term that we have used in the past and not the user timeline. Mm -hmm. Again, we don't want them to feel like they're cogs in somebody else's machine. We want them to feel like we are doing our, our every effort to meet them where they're at. So really taking a few moments at the beginning of the interview to say that our goals are just to understand you and hear from you and support people in your situation better and providing legitimate reasons for doing that. So not just saying it, but to tell them why and how and what our plans are. That really helps and it sets them at ease and it sets the interview up for success. All right, so you've got them all buttered up. Then how do you go in for the kill, <laughs> Johan? So in this case, um, I think it would be useful to talk about a tool that we use, and that's kind of my guide in these interviews. And the tool that we use is called a Situation Explorer. Um, just to describe a Situation Explorer, like Samuel, do you think we could actually link to a Situation Explorer in the... Um, on the landing page for this episode? Useronboard.com slash situation dash explorer. Awesome. Awesome. So um, you can go to that URL and check it out. But let me just describe it for you in case you can't do that right now. The Situation Explorer is uh, a sheet of paper that's divided into four columns. Almost kind of if you're familiar with like a business canvas, it's that it's it's that sort of a grid kind of a thing. We should also mention that this is something that we've made for our own internal use. This is not like a something that you would you would just find out in the wild. Each column in the business grid um, correlates to a particular time in the user's life. So uh, the columns towards the right would focus on their target state or even further out in their timeline, what happens after they achieve their uh, target situation. And what they hope the will columns... happen in the future. Right. 
and the columns uh, on the left are more towards the past. So what's happening right now, what happened before what's happening right now, and what happened further out into the past. Yeah. So if you, if you imagine a timeline in your mind and you imagine where they are right now as being a dot on the timeline, and, and whatever has happened to them before as preceding it, that dot to the left, what we're most interested in are what are the concrete ideas of the future states that they hope will be the case in their life that they want to actualize with your the invoice or offering incorporated into it. So we're looking at the timeline from the standpoint primarily of let's identify where you're at right now and where you want to be. And then we're going to try our best to gain as much context around that transition as possible and break down what that really looks like in reality for each individual person we're chatting. Right, right. So what you've got is a paper of moments in time. You've got a paper of whens, and you're trying to fill up each when with concrete details about what this person's life looked like at that particular time. Well, let's let's start with the when that that you start with. What's the first one that you that you begin an interview with? So, the first column I start filling out is the target situation. It's the reason that they are here engaging with this app to begin with. So, if you're starting off the conversation saying we're here to help people in your particular situation, then it's a really smooth segue to then ask well, what does that help look like? And what are you hoping that that help will unlock unlock for you? This gets people thinking about what they want and why they're here. And they have typically spent a lot of time thinking about these things. It's an easy question to start with. It's also the most um, insight-rich segment of the conversation for us. Why is that? Because this is where this is where outcome candidates um, surface. Later on, when we have filled out 50 situation explorers, we will be looking at these target states. And the more detailed they are and the more information rich they are, the better for us. So what I'm hearing is that when you talk about the target state, that is the the aspect of the the user's perspective that is most transparently the same thing that we are trying to get to the bottom of and everything else is kind of context around where they're trying to get to ultimately right and that context is really important because usually the target states are very very specific oh kind of like what we were talking about in the last episode you don't want to optimize for uh, someone taking an Uber to a wedding and have that situation be the thing that you invest in, invest your design points in. Why not weddings? Because they're really specific and you want to be somewhere on the spectrum between I'm getting Uber to get to point B and I'm getting an Uber to get to a wedding. Where you set your outcome dial should be somewhere in the middle of that spectrum at the sweet spot of general and specific. How do, how do people know how to find that sweet spot though? Um, this is how you find that sweet spot <laughs> Okay. with all of these interviews that you're running. You put all of the target states together. And what I'm trying to say is the target states can be really specific and the context surrounding the target states will help you figure out why those target states are important. I'm finding it difficult to talk about this without an example. 
Let me give you an example here. Okay. Without giving too much away, we were interviewing people about their careers and the target states were career related. So people would say, I want this specific job with these specific characteristics. And that would fill up the target state column. But we also wanted to know why those particular jobs were important or relevant or how they fit to our, the business's context. Um, and so filling out the other columns in the Situation Explorer helped us go from this specific job to this kind of job, which was different from a job that the company we were working with knew that people were interested in. They knew that people were interested in a job. And the Situation Explorer target state gave us this particular job. The context around um, the target state helped us tune the dial towards an outcome that was more applicable to um, a larger number of people. Did that make sense? I think so. So if somebody's, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, okay, well, I'm supposed to you know, get these people into a interview and then warm them up and then ask them about their target state. But if they are like, what do you mean by target state? I don't know what to say. And that apparently there's a sweet spot where you don't want to be too broad or you don't want to be too specific. That could be a source of anxiety for somebody who's, who's jumping onto these calls. So what we're saying here is that you don't have to worry too much about that because the patterns will emerge over time. And that what we really want to do here is to dive into the specifics of what is most important to a given individual and what they really care about their future looking like with your offering integrated into it. And then zoom out and look at the responses from all of the different interviews that we've conducted and see what sort of commonalities there might be. So to use Johan's you, uh, taking the an Uber to a wedding example, maybe we talk to a number of different people and sometimes it's people taking an Uber to a wedding. Sometimes it's people taking an Uber to a graduation event. Sometimes it's taking uh, Uber to a, a baby shower or, or something. What, what would be other like formal, formal kind of things that you would go to? Um, a cocktail party. I don't know. I'm thinking of some kind of ball from... Every movie I've ever watched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe maybe you're taking, but 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 in all of these cases, there's the commonality of the fact that you're that you're probably uh, formally attired, and that there are particular expectations that go along with uh, attending a a formal event of some sort. Uh, you are more concerned about if your clothes get a stain in the back seat, for example, so on and so forth. And so instead of saying we're going to focus specifically on helping people get to the, uh, uh, I keep wanting to say like a bris, which is not a, not the most. <laughs> <laughs> I think people would be like, Briss, that's the example he comes up with. <laughs> but, so instead of specifically focusing on helping people travel eastward to a wedding that takes place between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., because that's the one person who we happen to speak with about it, we can zoom out and say, instead of just taking an Uber because you know you want to get somewhere, we can say, hey, there's a decent chunk of people who are taking an Uber because they want to attend a formal event. And maybe it would be worth thinking through the process of attending a formal event so we can see how the Uber taking process integrates into the process, the bigger process that's driving them to take the Uber ride to begin with. Right. And specifically in the interview, 
I'm starting with the target state, but I'm also looking for details around the target state. So I go from target state to what happens after you reach that target state. So further the into target the state is, yeah, further into the future. So once you have achieved the target state, what happens after that? So when you take the target state that we're talking about, which is the anticipated future state, you like to then go further out into the future because in that case, it gives even more uh, context around where this motivation is situated in their life. Is that fair to say? Yes, that is totally fair to say. Okay, so so you, we, you, we generally want to identify a cluster of characteristics along the general future timeline. So when we say target state, that might be the thing that the the interviewee is most immediately conscious of and most immediately sees opportunity for with their knowledge of your offering. Uh, but it still is going to be fitting into an even broader life process of theirs in some form or other. And so the more information we can get about the further future, the more context that can give us around how to situate our assistance with the expected outcomes that the the interviewees are are mentioning and so i imagine right. the next step from there would be to get an understanding of where they're at right now so that we can help them come up with a plan for taking what they currently have and turning it into what they actually want so to recap the flow of the interview so far we kick things off with we are trying to learn more about users in your particular situation so that we can serve that situation better so in that context, tell us about uh, what you're hoping this software will unlock for you. And once people give us some details about that, we go into the further out state of why that matters. And from there, we bring it back to the present and say, well, what does now look like? Right. Wh where are you at right now, especially in relation to the desired future state that we just uh, asked them to articulate. So it gives them something specific to to think about where it's not just like, who are you as a person or, you know, what kind of car do you drive or whatever, uh, unless if that's relevant, of course. Um, but instead, we, we're not trying to understand them like as like a, a psychographic or demographic or as a representation of a market or anything along those lines. We really just want to understand what's happening in their life. And so once we've articulated the desired outcome that they have, and we've gotten some context surrounding that, then we like to bring it back to reality and say, what do you have to work with to get there right now? And we understand that Invoicer or whatever our offering is, is one part of that and one resource that you have available. But you also need to be leveraging, I mean, we, this is not literally how we say it, but, but in so many words, you need to be leveraging other, other resources, other skills and capabilities and forms of expertise, uh, that there are going to be other people involved in your process, that most likely, or other people are, are providing some sort of pressure uh, for you to, to make this change or are encouraging you to make this change from a place of compassion or whatever, that there are a lot of of different skills and resources and participants that are involved in this process that are immediately surrounding this person right now. And that is literally what they have to work with to be able to get to. It's all of that plus our offering equals 
hopefully their desired result. Right. Agreed. Agreed. In that regard, filling out the Situation Explorer with as much detail as possible. I like to punctuate the interview with why questions. So, oh, why do you say that? Or can you tell me why this matters? Um, Where you're pointing to a particular detail that they've just um, uh, talked about. So why questions? And I also like to punctuate with what do you mean by that question? So, oh, what do you mean by that? Or what does this particular thing mean? And this really helps um, people go into details that they might have missed the first time because they don't know that they're relevant to you as an interviewer. But having just talked about what I would punctuate the conversation with, I do want to say that I, the, the ideal practice is not to punctuate the conversation unless you have to at all. And just sit back and let them do the talking. Don't interrupt unless you absolutely have to. But if you do have to interrupt and you need more details, these two questions are a really great way to do that. Yeah. And just to just to give a shout out to that last point, uh, I, I like to even just let awkward silence hang and not be the first person to to interrupt or or just to fill the awkward space left in the conversation. A lot of times people will feel uh, kind of a, a, a sense of oncoming discomfort and will just keep talking and blurting things out uh, just to fill the space. And a lot of times those are the most interesting revelations and, and things that maybe they themselves didn't really enter into the conversation conscious of to begin with. So far, your interviewees have been in a state of recall, where they're recalling their desires, they're recalling their present state and what they have to work with at the moment, and uh, the circumstances surrounding both of these states. And what's really useful at this point is to switch gears and talk about the path from present state to resulting state. That's kind of what you're trying to do anyway, which is build a path from where they are to where they want to be. It's really helpful to ask them how they see that path and what stages they envision themselves having to work through between where they are now and their target situation. And so in this case, instead of emphasizing the specifics of their situation or the specifics of their desired situation, what we like to focus on next is what is their perceived plan for turning their present situation into their desired situation so we can better understand the process that they expect to put into place that we can then look for opportunities to uh, have our offering play nice with and integrate well into the the steps in in their perceived timeline is that a fair way of putting it johan yeah totally fair totally agreed Um, One small thing to note, though, is that people have spent the least amount of time thinking about this process. They've spent the most amount of time thinking about what they want, but the least amount of time thinking about how to get there. That's kind of a that's kind of a cynical take on humans. But that that's that bears (laughs) with your with your research experience, huh? Right. I'm not trying to make a philosophical point here. I'm not saying this is how humans are. But um, it, it stands to reason 
that if you don't know how to turn something into something, have you heard the phrase, the messy middle? Sure. I think the middle is messy because that's where you have the least amount of information to go off of. So what we want to do from a value pass perspective is to demystify the messy middle and to clear it up and to have reliable processes that go step by step through the different tra transitions that need to be made for the, the desired outcome to be fulfilled. It's not their job to know all the intricacies of that. But at the same time, it is helpful to understand how they think it's going to happen, whether that's within our product or even just within the broader context of their life, what they intend to do and get a clarity around that, because then that can help us speak to them it more in line with their expectations and better fulfill or and better support the things that they are expecting to do. And if we find out that a lot of people are planning to do something kind of dumb, then that's an, an, an interesting data point as well and something that we might want to uh, try to resolve through an educational approach rather than through an automated interface kind of approach. So with the present state and the target state and the future laid out, um, if you have time, it makes sense to dig into the past as well, because there are contextual clues there. But I want to underline the if you have time part, because it's more important for us to have information about the present state and the future state than it is to have information about the past. So there are rich contextual clues in the past, but they're not as important as uh, what we want to focus on, which is where they are and where they want to be. Firmly agreed. Wrapping up the interview is particularly hard because, um, at least for me, I always have this tendency to promise something, especially because people have taken the time to be generous. And um, this whole interview is set up on the foundation of us delivering something to them because we are taking the time to learn about their situations and invest in outcomes that they care about. So... Um, I try to resist the impulse to prop to make a concrete promise because um, there are no guarantees and we don't want to set the expectation that there are. But one thing I try to say and that, you know, mostly reassures people at this stage is that they are helping other users like them and that they are being that their voices and their situations are being represented in our company. And that's meaningful. That's meaningful to them. I completely agree. And so that covers the general process of an interview. Uh, but in our case, we've mentioned before that we do like to try to do 50. And in a very similar sense to how we described our approach with email, where you want to test out your messaging and test out the response to it uh, from the in, with with the first 15 people before you send it to the full 500 and so on and so forth. Similar process applies here too, where as you are talking to more and more people, you don't want to be over-indexing on the specifics of their given states, but you are becoming more and more clued into what the more general environmental kind of processes are. And as your familiarity with that increases, you can use that to hone your interview style more and more and more so you know exactly how to get right to the good stuff based off of your familiarity that you're picking up from one conversation to the next to the next. 
not just in how to conduct interviews, but your familiarity with the user's problem space that they're operating within. I do want to mention that it's important, you know, especially as your familiarity increases, to not set interviewees up for a particular kind of response. Very strongly agreed. Yeah. So once you start subconsciously noticing a pattern, don't let that trick you into asking leading questions. And so if somebody has uh, accumulated a, a enough uh, situation explorers or, or has have conducted enough interviews to the point where they have an idea of patterns beginning to emerge early in the process, and then they can more specifically target those patterns and try to really hone in on exactly what it is that is the key motivational driver uh, that, that you your company might want to invest further in supporting, then we take all of the specifics that we have captured in the research process and we look at them all together to try to find the wedding slash graduation slash prom equals attending a formal event kind of generalities that are more specific than just riding in a car, but are desired widely enough for there to actually be a quote unquote market for that particular outcome. Right, right. So the analysis process. Exactly. And I think that we may have already run a bit long in this episode as it stands. So we will hold off on covering the analysis part for a future episode. But uh, I hope that this has been helpful from the standpoint of being better able to clue yourself into the pulse that's driving people to come to your offering and ultimately to hopefully find success with it and want to stick around and, and refer it to other people and all of the good things that come with the kind of subscription unit economics that we love so much in the SaaS world. Uh, to say it again, this is the most reliable way to figure out uh, what beneficial outcomes you're working with. And so we were so excited to put this episode together and hope that it was useful for you. Absolutely. And it occurs to me now, probably should have occurred to me before, but it connects back to a principle that we talked about in a previous episode, where when we are talking about value and delivering people to a place of value, we are doing so in such a way that presumes on a fundamental level that the person who's benefiting from the process is the one who ultimately determines whether they received value or not. Instead of prescribing what kind of value we're going to deliver to people and deciding that the market needs blank or that people should probably want X or Y and creating a process that helps X or Y come to, come to be. Instead, we wanna be descriptive instead of prescriptive. And we want to identify what is the mo what are the motivational causes that drive people to become users, to become customers, to engage with our offering over time, so on and so forth. What are the things that are actually taking place in reality and how can we find patterns among those? And so, as Johan mentioned, this is our surest way of being able to put your finger on the pulse of what's driving people to become customers for your product, in our opinion, and ultimately takes you directly to the information that you need to be able to go into action and support those different patterns that you identify. 
Thank you so much for tuning in as always. And we would love to hear what you think. And we would especially love to help you if you liked what you heard in this episode and want to run a research process like this. If you need help at all, please hit us up. Yeah, and please keep the feedback coming in general. We're happy to make bespoke episodes based off of general kind of thematic questions that we're coming across, especially. So uh, it gives us ideas on what to talk about and hopefully can be of uh, applicable value to you as well. The email address, as always, is growth at useronboard.com. And uh, keep fighting the good fight. Yep. See you soon. 